0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. This is episode number 26 of The Paul Leslie Hour. Ladies and gentlemen, the man we're joined with, he's a very versatile artist. He's an award winning country singer, but he's also graced the stages of Broadway. It's a great pleasure to welcome Gary Morris. Thank you for being here.
1: Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Glad to be here.
0: How are you today?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm actually today in Tennessee. I'm here for another two or three days. Then I head to uh, Texas where I'm doing a string of dates. And um, it's all good.
0: And Texas is your, would you say Texas is your home?
1: Well, I was born and raised there. So I guess you'd call it that. I, I, I live, have a little small ranch in Colorado now that I call home. I've uh, been there actually probably longer than any place in my life. I've been there it's 18 years. So then I left home right after uh, high school. So that pretty much that, that, that gets the big majority of my life right there.
0: Well, going back to the, the early years in, in Texas, before you moved to Colorado what are your memories from that time
1: man i mean where do you want me to start i started i did my first solo in a baptist church when i was four uh my twin sister and i entered a talent show in the elementary school she played the piano and i sat on a bell of hay and sang this old house once knew my children this old house once knew my wife this old house and it won and um that What I actually learned is I was able to piss off every 4th, 5th, and 6th grader because a 3rd grader won the talent show. And <laughs> it was the beginning of some rea- a reality check. And then I uh, uh, played sports all the way through high school and college, four sports in high school and three out in college, and then went to Colorado for a summer, and that was my first real you know, venture out of Texas for an extended period of time was to move to Colorado.
0: Tell us a little bit about your ancestry. Is it true that there has been a history of singers in your family?
1: Well, my uncle sang. My grandfather on my mom's side was, led the music and revivals. He's from Mississippi and and has some songs in the, I guess it's uh, the Baptist hymnal. And on my dad's side, uh, and I didn't know this until I was in my thirties, uh, his dad played, the uh, the guitar and the mandolin. In fact, uh, I had done a show at, uh, Bass, Bass Hall in Fort Worth and, uh, gone back over to my mom and dad's house that well, we lived out in North Richardson Hills and, um, he had some friends over and one of his friends asked me, he said, Hey, uh, Where'd you get your talent? And I started to say my mom and my dad said, well, he got it from my side of the family. And he got up and went back and brought a shoebox in and pulled out a picture of his dad with a Carter family and some postcards. His name was Rufus. Saying, Rufus, when we're back in Texas, we, we hope we can... We can hook up and play music again, and you can knock me over with a feather. I had never heard that in my life. So, <laughs> so kind of on both sides, there was some music for sure.
0: And so, tell us about this decision that you made to move to Colorado. What was it that inspired that? Well,
1: it, you know, it was a, it was to be a summer job. I was uh, uh, playing uh, uh, played football at Cisco Junior College, and I was going to Tech to play, and two of my buddies, one of them I had known since the fifth grade, he was already at Texas Tech, and one of his fraternity brothers, they they called and said, hey, you want to go to Colorado for a summer, and we might be able to pick up a construction job and maybe play some music, and so, bam, you know, as a kid, I vacationed there. Uh, Lake City was a place that our family went for just about one week every year after I was seven or eight. So I was in, went to Colorado, rented an apartment over in Boulder and, uh, got a job doing construction during the day. And we, we auditioned at this place called Taylor Supper Club. And, and they, the, there were, we, we knew about five songs. I'd known the one guy for a week. And then Eddie, of course, since fifth grade, we, uh, we went on stage downstairs to an empty room, and he asked us if we knew any real country stuff. The two two other boys, Ron and Eddie, said, yeah. And I'm going, wow, we haven't practiced any of that. I'm thinking, what are we going to do? And they had done a Hank Williams medley uh for a fraternity thing, and Eddie turned to me and said, just follow me. I knew all the songs. And the next thing I knew, they put us up on stage and... You know, at the end of the summer, I was uh, 20, I guess, and I was making $1,000 a week. And I thought, man, this is maybe something I want to do. (laughs) So the other guys, one's an architect, one's a a dentist, and I'm an unemployed (laughs) singer-songwriter.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about one of the things that's interesting Is that you've sang for so many heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens. I wanted you to tell us a little bit about Jimmy Carter. All
1: right. I was actually down in Texas, uh, living right out of Fort Worth at the time when uh, that presidential campaign began, and Carter hadn't even sewed up the um i don't think the democratic nomination yet and there was a there was a uh, a story in the fort worth star telegram and it was something that was touting lloyd benson and that that uh, this this governor carter shouldn't be on the ballot because he didn't get enough names in in time or something and and i was i guess young naive impressionable and I, i i called up the head of the Democratic Party in Tarrant County, which is Fort Worth, and I said, what can we do about this? Why why can't uh, Carter be on the ballot so we can at least find out something about him? And she said, you can put, you can do petitioning work. So me and a little three-piece band went out a, on a Saturday and got names for half a day, and I kind of chalked that up because that's my political life right there. And about I don't know, maybe two or three weeks later, I got a call from a guy named Jody Powell, who ended up being his press secretary. And he said, we heard you did some work for the governor, and uh, we'd like to hear you sing because we might, um, maybe when we come to Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, you could warm up the crowd for us. So I said, well, come on down. And they came in from Georgia, and we set up a little thing in an office and played three or four songs. And they said, can you go to Asheville, North Carolina? And I said, when? This was like on a Monday. they said, well, we're, we're, the governor's going to speak there at the university on Friday. And I went, and they said, we got 500 bucks. <laughs> and so I packed up a van, went as a trio, drove to Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, was the warm up. And I, I did this. I did I did a version of American Trilogy and I don't know if you know that or not but it's got Dixie in it and um, all my trials and the battle of hymn of the republic and I didn't know but the Carter people were off stage freaking out when I started singing Dixie because it's slow Dixie and it was a university but it was you know it was a a mixed black and white crowd and they were they were Pulling their hair out when I started that, and I found out afterwards and anyway, I did wrote a little recitation and said, you know something about the Civil War and by where we were and then ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, and I still had uh glory, glory, hallelujah to sing and he walked to the other microphone, and the place erupted. people were standing and cheering and he was trying to sing, and I was trying to finish and get off stage. And I walked off stage, and they said, can you do the next 14 days? Hmm. And I went to Madison Square Garden. I did the Whistle Stop Tour. I did about 85 performances in front of him, and then played election night at the Omni, and, and then came back to the White House and played. So that's how it all came down.
0: What was he like? He was...
1: Yeah, very smart. Very smart, sharp, quiet spoken. I could tell you a story that a lot of people wouldn't understand. He was a man of really high integrity and he and, and it showed right there. I mean I was on the whistle stop tour, the real Mayor Daly was on there, you know, smoking cigars, back room kind of stuff. And and I'll tell you something that, like I said, a lot of people won't get or understand or maybe even like to hear, but I was in Russia doing a show in 1990 when um, the woman from Estonia and their their parliamentary proceedings, whatever they call them, stood up to Gorbachev and told told Gorbachev that Estonia was leaving. And I had done a concert that was televised for 600-something million households across the Eastern Blocs the night before. And I uh, was to have lunch with a, a gentleman from, where way was like their ASCAP BMI, he was, they call VOP, he was the vice chair of VOP. And he came in and blanched white and said, it's the beginning of the end. Uh, the Soviet Union will be no more. And then he looked at me and he says, you know what, American president caused this? And I'm thinking, well, it's ninety. It's gotta be it's gotta be Reagan and and he said, Jimmy Carter. I said, Well you have to tell me why. He said, Because Jimmy Carter represented human rights and it was not in our people's consciousness. They didn't get human rights until Jimmy Carter came along. And so I think I sensed that way back in the seventies, that you know, his the kind of quality he would be whether he was a good president or not, or made mistakes. He will say he micromanaged too much, and you know he wasn't part of the real system in Washington. But that's that's you know kind of a a story that I haven't told anybody or very few people about the the Russia trip.
0: Hmm. Would you say that that was a a, a good opportunity overall at that point in your career to get you in front of people and? No. And it wasn't.
1: I, I wasn't there to get in front of people. I was there because the more I got to know the guy, I thought he would uh, be a good president at the time. Now, on the backside, I was playing. I was invited to play CMA night at the White House, and we had Conway and Loretta and Tom T. Hall and Catlin and a whole bunch of them. And they all played, and then we went in and ate dinner. And then we went back into the East Room for a guitar pool, and the, the president starts by saying... I'd like to bring up my favorite singer and he brought me up. Then <laughs> I sang two or three songs and then I started getting calls from record labels and, um, got an invitation to go out and do something for MCA and cut some songs and came back. And then a couple of weeks later got a call that there's this new guy, Jimmy Bowen who's taken over MCA and there's, they're not going to all all new projects are canceled, and I thought, well, wow, well, that's the way it goes. But when I did go back, I moved there. Uh, I was told by a guy named Harold Bradley, the only guy that uh, would understand me as a singer, was a guy named Norrell Wilson. And I kept trying to get an appointment, and finally one day, I just walked down to Warner Brothers and walked in the lobby, and you got to understand, I had long black hair and a beard, and I was in overalls and with work boots and a t-shirt and i walked in and told the secretary i was there to see noro and she said do you have an appointment and i said no but he said he's busy and i said well i'll just wait so i just sat down in the lobby that's about 9:30 in the morning at about 2:30, he comes out of his office and said you want to see me and i said are you noro and he said yes i am i said well i do he said he looked at me and said Have we met before? I went, I don't think so. He said, did you sing at the White House? I went, I did. He brought me in and listened to my songs, and I told him I wrote them and sang them. He called Los Angeles, and I I had officially a record deal that day. So ultimately, all the stuff I did with Carter got me the record deal, but it wasn't because of trying to get it while I was out there or trying to get any acclaim. It was just uh, being part of the process.
0: What was Nora Wilson's response when you when you played him your demo?
1: It was he called L A on, the, on yeah. the, I mean at that moment he called L A. He asked me he said did you write these? I said I did, and he said are you singing? And I said I'm singing all the parts and I'm playing. And he called uh, Andrew Wickham, who was the head of Warner Brothers Country out of L A, and got him on the phone said I have a guy here I want to sign, and I'm listening. And he said no 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 no. I want a, I want a commitment right now. I don't want anyone else to hear him. That's what he said. And I went, oh, wow. <laughs> and it, he said, do you have an attorney? And I said, no. And he said, well, I'll get you one. He says, he's got an attorney. Yes, okay. And he said, congratulations, son. You're on Warner Brothers. We'll get the paperwork worked out. And that's it happened that quick when I finally saw
0: him. Surreal. It was. <laughs> wow. It's almost like something out of a movie. That's great.
1: Oh, uh, it's funny. If I were to tell you my life story, everybody says that knows the ups and downs of those, they'd say, You got to write that. I went, No, nah, nobody would believe it. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really fathomable.
0: How much do you think luck plays a part in someone's success when they're an artist? Or is it all the, the hard work?
1: I don't think uh, you know. I think you have to be willing to work hard, but but uh, I mean, I, I mean, how familiar are you with the music business? I mean, there's there's uh, uh, obviously a lot of luck. There is also a lot of who knows who, and who pays for what, and that's probably worse than it's ever been. And uh, how do you get a record played? And then how important are the award show? And even if they are phony, I mean, I remember clearly that, uh, you know, come come award shows that record labels, you know, if you had to be a, in the music business, so everybody at Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers, LA, New York, London, Tokyo, wherever, they all joined the CMA or the ACM, so each one of, and everybody that was an employee, so they'd have you know, 4,000 votes. And same thing for CBS, same thing for RCA. And come time for awards, there'd be calls between the the top guys. Hey, we don't have anybody for a new artist of the year, To you? Okay, well, we'll trade you our 4,000 for your 4,000 for our song of the year, or whatever. And it just was on and on. But the public believes it. And that's something I really didn't get. I went, oh, man. Does anybody know how this really works? <laughs> so it takes luck. It takes timing. And I'll tell you that Jimmy Bowen was a co-producer with me on When Beneath My Wings. And uh, and he's responsible for making that record at least get heard. He told his guys, don't let this one die. People have to hear it. And then he took me to Capitol. He took me from Warners to MCA, and then the Capitol. And he told me when we, went, we were going to Capitol, he said, "You're next. I got to deliver this guy named Garth Brooks. And after that, it'll be your turn." And that's the way it works. Who's next? George Strait. Who's next after that? Earl Thomas Conley. Who's next after that? You know, for a label to put all its all its focus and might behind something. Now, that was in the '80s. And the 90s. I couldn't tell you what it is right now. Uh, I don't think they know what it is right now. It's just simply money. Maybe maybe a little
0: less. Now, Jimmy Bowen, the producer. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about his involvement with your story. Well,
1: I mean, Bowen, uh, Bowen came to town, you know. I mean, he actually turned down my first project before we ever heard it. And then when he came back in, he he came in from Elektra to start running Warner Brothers. And he canned a bunch of acts then. And he kept me and he kept half of the record and said, you and I will produce the other half. The first half was Bob Montgomery. And it has a song called The Love She Found in Me, which was nominated for Song of the Year. I think probably Why Lady Why. Now, I'm not sure if that was on it. There's just so many now, but... But Bowen and I went into the studio together and he was there to cut tracks and then I did the rest of it on the, on one side of the Y Lady Y album. But you know he ran the label and if he said, "This record makes it guys, or your jobs on the line?" And he was that kind of guy, but he was a very smart record guy. He still would be, and he changed the the whole scope of making records in Nashville. The two-inch analog tape went away, and digital recording came in, and Bowen was the guy that did it. A lot of people might want to take credit for it, but he came in and he forced the issue. And and, uh, and then record budgets went from 50000 to 200000 but sales went from 50000 to platinum and multi-platinum and that kind of stuff. So, um, I mean, for all the people that don't like him I think he was a great record guy, and I personally like him. I played golf with him. I think he's uh, he's a smart, cagey, good record guy.
0: The song, The Wind Beneath My Wings, the first time that you heard it, what was your initial reaction? My version? There there was a demo first, wasn't there?
1: Yeah. Well, the demo, the demo was Larry Henley and Jeff Silbar wrote it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard it and I just uh, actually Martha Sharp at Warner Brothers wh- who was head of A&R uh, had this demo and said hey you ought to hear this and I said mm, that song's for me and I, I mean we, we went in right away and cut it and we were in the process of cutting that record anyway. I just felt like and, and there was a lot of grief with Warner Brothers L A at the time. They, I, I was playing softball. After I'd cut it, we'd sent the sent the parts to L A, and I was out playing on the Warner Brothers softball team. And a and a limo comes up with some guys from Warner Brothers saying, "Hey, you got to call uh, L A Carl Scott, who was head of promotions in L A, and, and talk to him about this record. win Beneath My Wings, you're making it a single. When I call him, and he said. We're missing part of it. And I said, What do you mean? He said, Well, there's all there is on it is like a guitar and, you know, two or three voices, and there's just nothing there. And I said, Well, that's the record. He said, Are you trying to kill your career? And I went, No. And I remember Alan Dick was over at uh, running IVK in Knoxville, and I'd already done George Strait and I had done their big. Music Appreciation Day. I called him up. I said, Alan, will you play this record? He said, well, well, Gary, it's four minutes of dead air. And I said, well, would you play it at like two thirty in the morning on a Saturday after everybody's getting out of the bars and going home? He said, yeah, for you, I will. <laughs> and he called me on Monday and said, well, I'm, we must've missed that one. We had six or seven calls before the 6 a.m. shift to replay that record. Oh, wow. And it was kind of like that everywhere. And there were two or three stations in the country that wouldn't play it. Houston, IVK in Houston, and KMPS. Funny, I should remember. In Seattle, they wouldn't play it. Said, said it's not country. And like, like what their the crap they're playing today is. So, <laughs> I'm glad that's live.
0: <laughs> well, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about the state of country music today?
1: I think it's crap. Yeah. I think it's a combination of country and rap, and that's crap. And um you know the and, and let me let me preface it this way. I could take any one of the artists doing what they were doing if you would still hear on top 40 country radio Merle and Hank and uh, George Jones if they were still played in a rotation and that's what was going on in the 80s. You could listen to, uh, if you listen to K, KSCS in Fort Worth, you'd hear, you might hear me, you might hear straight next, you might hear Merle next, you might hear George Jones, you might hear Patsy Klein, then you might hear Alabama. And it was a mix that invited young people in or younger people in to uh, a, a country format. Well, when George got to, Country for Country Radio. I knew we were in trouble. So I mean, I've never ever said, "Hey, I'm a yodeler. I'm Hank. I'm Merle." I said, "This is what I do." But my audience, my base audience, comes from country music. They like what I do. So call it what you want.
0: When you uh, when you undertook these musical theater projects, uh huh? How did your fan base react to that?
1: My fan base loved it. Country Radio, you know, quit playing me after doing Les Mis. Uh, when, I went, when I went to do Lob with Linda Ronstadt, it was a, a huge event. And, um, you know, it was and Wind Beneath My Wings, one song of the year that October. And I was opening in, the, in October in New York with her. And the reason I, I took it, I, I turned even down the auditions for six or seven months. They kept trying to get me to go sing for them but I took it because Randy Travis, who's on Warner Brothers and Dwight Yoakam, who was on Warner Brothers and Skags, they were they were bringing some young traditional sounding country and I thought that's what they're wanting to play right now. I'll take a little break and go do something then I'll come back and do another record. My next record after going up there was with Linda was playing Brown rapper and it had a top 10 that uh, should have gone higher and I one and so i was back at it once again in 87 when i went back it was really moving the the format was moving to a traditional sound and i thought okay well i'll go do something else i did it for six months i went to new york and played the lead in the number one show on broadway now let's be clear with all your listeners CBS and RCA tried to make, just tried like the devil to make everybody believe I was an opera singer in my life. I've seen two operas. I was in them both. I've never had vocal lessons. I learned to sing in a Southern Baptist church. So that's on the record. You know, I, I enjoyed it. I had, I had a big time, but when I was done, I was done. And I went back and never got another play on country radio. So.
0: Hmm. What are your memories of Linda Ronstadt of, of of being around her? What was she like?
1: Well, she's fabulous. She's a sweet, no big star complex. On my birthday, my birthday is December seventh, and I was up there, and she brought a cake and she'd baked it, and she opened up the box and and <laughs> it had slid apart, and she looked at me and says, "Well, it doesn't look good, but it'll eat good." And that kind of sums her up. I mean, she's very articulate and very smart and very warm. We were playing, uh, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. We were playing trivial pursuit and I'm not much for playing those kind of games, but, and it was George Lucas and Amy Irving and Steven Spielberg and Linda and me in the green room. And, and Lucas won, won with who's, The Walt Disney of the 80s. He he drew that card and he said, I guess that's me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, you know, uh, but yeah, she, you know, she had a car service, but not a limo. They brought her in in an old car down. She had a place up on, I think, 85th. Just a genuinely warm, bright, creative person. She's great.
0: Something about you is that you have sang duets with some of the great singers of our time. Lynn Anderson, Crystal Gale. Tell us about some of the people you've sang with and who you would like to sing with that you haven't yet. Man.
1: I mean I've done duets with a lot of people and I can't even can even tell you all of them. I'd love to do on Patsy Klein if we could just get her back. But yeah, Lynn and I've done duets on tv with a lot of other people but and i did an album with crystal saying i did a duet with george george jones on amazing grace on a concert you know there's really nobody out there that i could think of right now today that i'd want to go out and do a duet with i mean a lot of people at one time i thought it might be fun to do something with some pop singer. Oh, I did the end title song to Blind Date. And that was a duet. And that was a really cool song. It uh, was a pick hit on AC and then and Warner Brothers never worked it because I had the Crystal Gale du- duet album. But there's not anybody that that um, I can think of I'd covered uh, uh, the song From a Star is Born with One More Look at You for Scott Hamilton. And, and that was uh, originally, uh, I think, yeah, Bette Midler, I believe, sang that. And, uh, of course, then she covered when won a Grammy for hers. I don't know. I, I, I can't think of anybody that would really excite me going, oh, yeah, I'd like to do something with Taylor Swift. I'd like to do a song with Taylor Swift. And the reason is because I think she's really smart. And I think that, you know, her records are well done. Or maybe even Shania. And, and for the same reason, her records, I like production on them.
0: Those are two good choices. Yeah. So tell us what is in the horizon right now for Gary Morse?
1: Well, I'm on the road. Man, people have discovered me. It's really interesting. I think some of the some of the folks have gone, we'd love to hear a melody and a lyric again. And most, most all of the shows I'm doing are solo. I take uh, three guitars and different tunings and cover everything from trips to New York to hits to... You know, I fancy myself as a singer-songwriter, and there's a whole lot of songs people haven't heard that were on records that never got any uh, real airplay although I just kept making them so it's most interesting I'm playing performing arts centers and corporate dates and uh, casinos and that's a rarity to be able to go play a casino solo and uh, it's, it's fun I'm actually having a heck of a lot more fun than when I was under the gun to carry a band and sound and lights and a Road manager, a production manager, and a business manager, and an agent. And and a lot more profitable, too.
0: For me, there's something about seeing an artist when they're just, it's just them and their guitar. I really like that.
1: Well, I'm I'm finding out that there are a lot of people that really like it. I've said whenever I can't go out there and sing them, then I'm done. But up till then, I'm going to go play. And like I'll leave here and I go play the twelfth and of October in Arlington and thirteenth in Greenville and then I'm headed to Florida and then I'm and then I'm doing a series of casinos in Iowa and I don't know where I'll I'm not looking at a calendar, but it's uh it's pretty pretty good. I like it.
0: What is the best thing about being Gary Morris? Hmm.
1: Waking up one more day, I think. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, there there's some short there's some shortcomings, you know. Uh, like I have a rabid fan that's a little bit loose in the head that sends a million emails and. Text messages and all that kind of stuff. So there, and there's sometimes you think of it, there's a little security issue. But probably at this point in time, the best thing I can think about what I've done is that, you know, I made pretty much my own choices and, and uh, I didn't live by somebody else's rules. It's just, and it's
0: worked out. For anyone out there who's listening, what would you say to the audience out there? Keep coming.
1: Find find people you love and support them. It's a lot different these days. Back in the day, in the 80s, the 90s, probably even the young 2000s, artists toured so they could sell records. And with the record industry in the dump like it is, what happens is artists make records to support their touring they make their living off touring now and and that was never the case if you broke even touring that you were selling records and you you didn't have to worry about it so support the guys you like the girls you like the bands you like go see them live if you want to get in this business it's a lot of work don't give up your day job
0: (laughs) well thank you very much for sharing with us you bet, man. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure.
1: Well, I appreciate it, man.
0: No, it's an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Have a good one. See All you. All right.
0: Till next time. Bye. Always a pleasure to have you here on the Paul Leslie Hour. For more information on Gary Morris, visit his website, GaryMorris.com. Thanks for spending time with us. Until next time.
1: The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit ThePaulLeslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.